0: This is a huge issue. We, women don't want help in the form of an assistant, the way that an assistant would take orders or receive a list of tasks and get things done. Um, we want a partnership in which all that needs doing is mutually seen and felt and tackled.
1: I'm Amy. And I'm Abby.
2: Molly, I consider myself one of your biggest fans. I read your book, To heaven To Hold, and ever since then, I haven't stopped talking about it, and I try to get every woman to read it. Thank you so much for your work and for helping any woman that does choose to read it. Uh, we're going to start off by asking you to tell us a little bit about who you are, what you do, and why you're so passionate about it.
0: So thank you, first of all, for having me on the podcast. I've been very excited about this and it's really an honor. Uh, well, first and foremost, I'm a woman and an imperfect human being and a mother and a wife and a friend and a daughter, just like the two of you. And just like most everybody who's listening, I'm sure. So I want to establish that before I talk about who I am as a professional. Uh I mean, of course, I want to share any wisdom and insights I've gained from my training and my experience as a psychologist, but my degrees don't make me immune to the struggles that we all have as women and mothers, and I don't have all the answers. Um, I, honestly, it, when I was looking at the comment thread after you posted something about this upcoming um episode and people were saying such lovely, wonderful things about the book, but also generating all these questions. And I was thinking, I don't know the answers to all these questions. Um, So I will do my best. That being said, I have a PhD in clinical psychology and up until about a year and a half ago, I was balancing or maybe I should say never quite balancing an academic career as a tenured professor with a part-time therapy practice for about 15 years. And now I'm a psychologist in full-time private practice where my time is divided fairly evenly between couples work and individual work. And most of the individuals that I see are women And most of those women are struggling in some way in their roles as mothers, wives or partners. So I would say that my emphasis professionally is on women's well-being and relationship or marital well-being. And I think where my greatest passion lies is in the connection between those two. I want the world to understand that our well-being is intricately tied to the quality of our bonds with our partners. And that's something that I talked quite a bit about um, in my book. So I'm trying to do my part to change the way women's depression is understood, especially postpartum or perinatal depression, because that is a time when women's emotional struggles, their psychological struggles are so obviously rooted in a lack of support and something that i've come to understand is that women's women's depression if they have full blown depression and then a lot of their what i would call subclinical emotional distress meaning all the suffering and struggling that goes on among women who don't meet the criteria for a depressive disorder or an anxiety disorder all of that is relational and it's all perfectly understandable and legitimate in light of the impossible standards that are placed on women, especially on mothers. Uh, And yet there's such a tendency when women are in distress to blame it on hormones or some other aspect of biology or some characterological problem. So I'm passionate about helping um, all human beings, but especially women kind of liberate themselves from the shame that comes from feeling their struggles are unfounded or unusual. And I would argue that nowhere is that experience more pronounced than in motherhood. So I, I wrote a book that I hoped would help women claim their messy, often painful, difficult experience of motherhood as completely normal. And I can say more about, you know, if you'd like, about sort of how did i know that that was completely normal it was really that i was so struck when when i was a new mother myself and i was working with other new mothers in my practice i was so struck by the similarity of the stories that i was hearing what, practically identical words coming out of different clients mouths and they were words that i could have easily been saying myself and yet everybody was feeling so ashamed and falsely believing that they were alone or unusual to feel that way. So um, this, I suppose, is a very long winded answer about, you know, what is my passion? I think that I'm just really passionate about helping women feel normal and uniting women in their in their common struggles.
1: When you say liberated, that's exactly how I felt and just so validated Literally, Molly, we get messages daily on how good this book and hearing these points at the expert level is making our community feel. So thank you for that. And you say that you don't have all the answers, but I know that you have way more answers than (laughs) most people who I've talked to. I've literally never underlined a book and said, yes, that's it. That's what I'm feeling more in my entire life. So like all of our episodes, we want to dive right in with you. So what seems to be the biggest struggle that the modern women are
0: facing when it comes to motherhood? Well, we live in a time and a a sociocultural climate in which the expectation is that women can have it all, that we can have thriving careers and thriving marriages and thriving children all at once. And our social institutions, uh, our our public policies and and sociocultural norms, they all would seem to suggest that these endeavors can can be pursued and we can succeed at them with, with minimal support. And so what I mean by that is that because there's so little sort of built-in support for women who are um, new mothers or working mothers needing childcare, et cetera, because there's so little support, we do this um, very unfortunate kind of internalizing of that social situation. And translated as some sort of individual problem or flaw. Like there must be, given that there's so little support out there, this must all be stuff that should be done with little support by most women. And I guess everybody else is doing fine. And so why am I not doing fine? Um, But the reality is that motherhood alone, even if that was all we were doing, you know, even if we weren't also trying to maintain a, a, a marriage or an intimate relationship or a career, um, never mind friendship and you know self care, all of that motherhood all by itself is incredibly taxing and difficult, and cannot should not be done alone. But in our culture, the conditions of early motherhood are quite isolating. So I guess the biggest struggle is the one that results from the absence of support and the presence of unrealistic expectations, like those two things go together and it's sort of toxic. Uh, There's so much fatigue and depletion, we're running ourselves ragged, and so much shame about not handling the demands very well when there's this assumption that we can and should that we can have it all and, and do it all. So women are racking their brains trying to figure out what they're doing wrong to be having such a hard time because it's not what they pictured.
2: right? And and because
0: they're under the illusion that other women aren't struggling just as much.
2: Yeah. It seems like, you know, the answer that we're getting is that there's a hack for everything. Right. We're just more organized. We wouldn't feel so... um, busy and stressed and underwater a lot of the time. For me personally, I know your book and a couple other books I've read helped me to understand the gender roles that were happening in my household, even though we thought that we were kind of forward. Mm -hmm. in those. And so it just uncovered a lot of things that I could ask my husband for help with that I just took on just because, you know, my mother had or right. like I saw every other woman doing. So why wouldn't I be the one to make the doctor's appointments or whatever it was? Right. Yeah. Um, So going into our next question, a lot of the time, I think something that's also really hard for women is the expectation of what type of mother they thought that they would be. And that can really get in the way of their actual experience. What do you think is the biggest false belief held by new mothers? And what advice would you give to our listeners that are working through this?
0: Honestly, it, it's hard to identify one single biggest false belief. I think I think the problem is that the the list of false beliefs and unrealistic expectations is sort of endless. Uh, you know, we have visions of what kind of mother we will be, meaning patient and warm and emotionally steady. We have expectations around how quickly our bodies will recover, how well we will. Be able to weave motherhood seamlessly into our existing identity how much we'll get done while we're home with the baby and on and on and on so uh, i can't pick just one that's more important than all the rest but i'm going to i want to try to highlight two because i think that they have such a big sweeping negative impact on well-being so One is the expectation that transitioning to motherhood will be a temporary disruption of our lives. Um, So emphasis there on temporary being the kind of mistaken part. And then the other is the expectation that our partners will share evenly in the responsibilities of parenting. So um, uh, in terms of the first, I think everybody, everybody knows to expect some initial upheaval when a baby is born. There, you know, We know to expect disrupted sleep and a change in routine, a tough time adjusting to all the new responsibilities and the loss of personal freedom, all of that. But there's also an expectation that at some point fairly early on in the process, like maybe at one of the uh, arbitrary milestones or time points that exist in the postpartum realm, like the six or 12 week mark when Many women go back to work or, or the six week checkup with your OBGYN or, or six months or a year out when maybe we're no longer considering ourselves a new mom. There, there's this expectation that at one of those kind of time points, you'll be your old self again, or you'll be, quote unquote, back to normal. And I think women experience a tremendous amount of shame for continuing to have a hard time long past those milestones. We are deeply and forever changed by becoming mothers and those early major disruptions, even when they settle down, they can have lasting ripple effects uh, like changes to the marriage, for example, which as you know, is another big emphasis in my book, but the the changes that occur early on within a, a marriage or a partnership can e- even if they improve somewhat, they can have a sort of lasting effect or, or a residue um, changes to sleep patterns. You know, a lot of women are are uh, forever insomniacs after they, after they become mothers because they just no longer get into the same deep, deep restful sleep, even when their babies are sleeping through the night or something as profound as a changed relationship to time you know that we uh, I wrote about how I feel like I've been in a hurry ever since I became a mother you know that i've I've somehow never been able to kind of restore the relationship I had with time before um, before my children came along so those are those are profound lasting changes and what I've Seen so much in my practice, my therapy practice, and what I wanted to depict with the stories in my book is that there are all the struggles that come with the terrain of motherhood, and then there is the shame on top of that for struggling at all. when our our day-to-day life as a mother is really hard, and when we don't feel like ourselves or we're anxious or depressed or otherwise unwell somehow, months or years after having a baby. That doesn't line up with this picture of what motherhood would look like for you or what it appears to be for everybody else which is another problem of course the sort of airbrushed and curated images of motherhood that we see in the media and online Um, and it's so patently false and yet we use it as a, a yardstick against which we we measure ourselves and the second one, the, the belief that you and your husband or partner will be this unified team where everything is split evenly and you share fully in the experience of being parents and maybe even feel closer as a result, that is another false belief uh, that is so damaging because we can't help but engage in this process of comparing Our upheaval as new moms and our load, mental and otherwise, to our partners. And invariably, (laughs) the load is heavier for us, the degree of upheaval and sort of discombobulation in motherhood is greater for us as women. And that is true no matter how supportive your partner is no matter how strong a relationship you had going into parenthood so that discrepancy i think takes so many people by surprise and it brews resentment how how could it not if you're if you're constantly aware of not only how hard it is for you way harder than you ever expected it would be to be a mother. And then by comparison, your husband or your partner seems to have it pretty good. um, That is a recipe for resentment. So, so that's the other big one that I just wanted to emphasize.
2: And I can emphasize, I fully felt that, and I feel like I have a really supportive partner and other women also always tell me like, well, you're actually lucky because Drew does a lot Mm -hmm. uh, compared to their spouses. And That's an interesting conversation for me because I know that he does do a lot, but I know that I was hit with so much more than he was hit with
0: hmm. Right. I think it really is about the, the comparison or the or the relative, you know, the relativity. So. So, yes, clearly, if you have a supportive husband and a husband who does a great deal, your experience on the whole, in terms of all the logistical challenges of parenthood, is going to be a little bit easier than somebody who has no partner or a very hands-off partner. But that doesn't mean that that experience of comparing and feeling like, wait a second, how did this happen? How is it that we're not sharing the load evenly, especially if we worked really hard to have a, you know, a, a, an egalitarian relationship prior to becoming parents, that hurts. That's a very painful experience to be having. And it doesn't, you know, it's, it's all relative. It's about the difference between you and your partner in, um, in, how, in how heavy the load is.
2: Right. Like it's hard for all mothers and using each other as a measuring stick is probably not going to make it easier for us. No, exactly. Um, another topic that really goes hand in hand with the shame that you were talking about a little bit earlier is mom guilt. And when we opened up and we're gathering questions for this interview, a lot of people wanted to know how to combat mom guilt because it seems like we're living in a society that kind of tells you it's okay if you're a working mom, but when you get home, you need to be fully present and please don't take any other time away from your children. Or it's okay if you go on vacation, but please mainly focus on how much you miss your children and just post about that. Or if breastfeeding doesn't work for you, please try these 146 things before you even think about stopping. Um, It's just, it's really hard. So, we wanted to hear what would what is your professional opinion on how we can start to combat mom guilt?
0: Yeah, those are all such good examples, good examples of these messages that filter in from outside that make us feel guilty. Um, and I, I want to emphasize the fact that even without all of those, Sort of external societal messages. We can do a fine job all on our own of making ourselves feel guilty. So, mom guilt is a beast. Uh, it really is. And I, you know, there was this great irony for me when I was working on my book, which was absolutely a <laughs> a labor of love. Took me a very long time to do. Um, love and blood and sweat and tears and all of that and all the hours that I was spending trying to create this book were hours that I was not with my children. And so I was writing about mom guilt at the same time that I was experiencing it. And I actually, I I don't know if you saw that I posted quite a while back on my Instagram a poem that my younger son wrote called Mom's Book. It was a short poem in which he expressed his gratitude that I was done writing the book because something about, you know, mom would disappear for hours on end um, and now she's back and she can make us dinner or something something like that. And, you know, it's just so, so real. That was his experience that, you know, he was, he was aware that there was something else really important that I was spending a great deal of time doing. And of course, my hope is that, as he gets older, he will understand the value of that. And, you know, he clearly doesn't seem to hold it against me, but it was, this was a very, very powerful thing that I was having to contend with as I was writing the book. So anyway, our, our propensity toward guilt is, is, this is something I touched on in the book is it's probably a byproduct of our capacity for empathy, meaning that the same, brain circuitry that allows us to be really good mothers, that allows us to be attuned to our children and aware of what they're feeling. Uh, Ironically, it is that same brain circuitry that um, sets us up to feel guilt because we are so sensitive to other people's needs, namely our children's or especially our children's. And so that sensitivity makes us also susceptible to feeling guilty if we perceive that we may be harming or letting somebody down who is important to us, again, especially our child. So I say it's ironic because really it's that great sensitivity um, and capacity for empathy that is actually making us good mothers. (laughs) And yet it's setting us up to feel guilty about not being good enough mothers. Um, So what to do about this problem? This is a place where I do not have all the answers. One of the things that I think can be quite helpful is to recognize the difference between what I call valid guilt versus unfounded guilt. Um, Valid guilt being, you know, the kind of guilt that we feel when we truly have behaved in a way that's out of alignment with our values. Um, and unfounded guilt being the kind that plagues most of us mothers all the time. And in the book, I went into some detail about how to tell the difference between the two. Um, but in a nutshell, I think that if we can recognize that valid guilt is you know, fairly rare, like we don't typically behave in ways out, out, out of alignment with our values. And unfounded guilt is like a shadow that follows us around all the time. So if we can learn to distinguish between those two, and then once we recognize unfounded guilt as um, more or less like a shadow, then we can just notice it and carry on, you know, like you don't stop walking because you have a shadow, (laughs) you just keep going. Um, And so I advocate for the same kind of attitude with guilt, like where you turn toward it, you recognize it for what it is. Okay, I see you, I recognize you. Um, and I don't, I don't need to buy into this. I don't need to get bogged down by it. I'm just going to carry on and sort of do my thing. The other concept that I think is so important that I, I'm not sure how many people have heard about this um, very prominent idea in the field of psychology is the concept of the good enough mother. Have the two of you heard about that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that was an idea put forth by a psychologist named Winnicott. And I think that that like those three words are just a salvation. I think that we do not have to be the perfect mother. Um, we don't even have to be a great mother, we can just be a good enough mother. And that truly allows for our children to thrive and become good human beings. So I try to think about this a lot for myself, I certainly work with my clients around it, that yes, we're making all kinds of mistakes, and we're not always showing up as our best selves. But on the whole, on the balance, are we good enough? Yeah. I mean, the answer is yes, of course we are. There's so much love and attention that we're giving to our children all the time. And it's just mixed in with these moments where we're less present, or we're short-tempered, distracted. But but striving to be good enough is a far more attainable goal, and I think really helps to sort of tame the beast of of mom guilt.
1: And to everyone listening, hearing those words and then believing those words that you are a good enough mother is just so so important during this. It's a transformation. Like going in through motherhood is such a transformation, and I know many of our listeners, Molly, are Team Audiobook. Amy here, she's like listening to your voice. She's like, ah, oh, this sounds so much like the audiobook because I'm talking to the, to the person who read that. I'm team actually reading a book. And I know that right on page five, you really hooked us in with that typical shift from postpartum depression, which is a term that so many of us know so well, into something a little bit different, which is postpartum transformation. So, Molly, can you define those for our listeners?
0: Well, postpartum depression, I think, has two immediate connotations one is that it doesn't happen to everybody and the other is that it is time limited that that it comes on at a certain point after a baby is born and then goes away with or without treatment and the implication is that everybody who is spared full-blown postpartum depression is basically okay and motherhood is a relatively seamless transition for them uh, I mean of course most people know that having a baby will disrupt their lives but they as i was saying earlier they expect that disruption will be temporary and and fairly superficial you know it'll be a disruption to your your bo- body for a while it'll be a disruption to your sleep for a while etc um postpartum transformation is a far more expansive and inclusive term meaning that it captures the fundamental and irreversible changes that all women undergo when they become mothers. The term it invites the perspective that nobody comes through the transition to motherhood unscathed and that it is a, really a metamorphosis. It's not a temporary blip or disruption. It's not a treatable psychological ailment that afflicts a minority of women so i think that that term that phrase postpartum transformation is just critically important and i wish that everybody would would use it and be able to sort of put use it as a frame around their experience to to have more compassion for themselves that they're going through a transformation of really pretty epic proportions
1: and having that compassion It's easier said than done. Like as so many of us know, it's so much easier said than done. Um, I know myself, I really fall into judging myself on some of those non-joy states of motherhood where it looks like other women are having more fun or doing things better. The good enough mother mentality, like I'm just so glad that you brought that up again today, Molly. But when we automatically label those times and those scenarios when we're not having complete joy as bad, as wrong, as shameful that whole part of your book really resonated with me. So I know as a working mom, I find my days at home with my children are really, really challenging. And it can make me feel like I'm just a better professional. I'm better in sales. I'm better at doing those things than actually being a mom, which is hard to say in front of all these people right now. It's so hard to say, but it's what I believe. And I know so many women listening also believe that part of it. So I've definitely judged myself. Um, So can you talk through just this judgment on self, whether you're a working mom or
0: a a stay-at-home mom? It there's judgment everywhere. Yes. And and first, I want to say I'm so glad that you're speaking openly about that. You know, you're acknowledging that it's scary to say that out loud. Um, but that is exactly the kind of thing that needs to happen again and again and again. We need to have this kind of transparency as women about how we actually feel in motherhood so that, that we can be released from that shame. Because as you say that, I'm certain there are so many people listening who feel exactly the same way. And I myself, as a working mother, you know, a woman with a, a, a career, I have often felt that I enjoy, if I, if I have a full day either home with my kids or working, my enjoyment, my sort of sense of ease and and purpose is stronger when I'm working. And that's just the truth of it for me. I love my children fiercely and I love a lot of moments with my children. But as far as like a great expanse of a day, I feel better, kind of more comfortable in my own skin, more competent, more, even more alive um, doing my work and being with my children in at the end of the day as sort of um, like a rest, uh, a a sense of haven in my home with my husband and my children, that's where I'm at my best. But if I had been home with them all day, forget it. I'm not going to be at my best. I'm not going to embrace everybody at the end of the day and feel loving and so glad to be together. So just because you want children and love your children fiercely doesn't mean that you should want to be with them all day long. Like just plain and simple. Um, so this is so closely related to mom guilt, right? Because we're, you know, this issue of judgment, uh, we're, we're chastising ourselves for not enjoying motherhood all the time um, or for not doing it well enough. And most of us are our own worst critics. And we enter into motherhood with such high expectations for ourselves. We also... I think I referenced this earlier. We fall prey to the illusion that others are doing it so much better and having an easier time of it, but that's such an illusion. There, there's that phrase: "Don't compare your insides to other people's outsides," <laughs> um, which I love. You know, we only see the outside of people that we don't know all that well, or people that whose pages we're seeing on social media. And people portray themselves clearly in a um, in a positive light, and yet we compare all of the sort of mess and turmoil of our internal experience to how it appears for other people. So, um, for example, Amy, I was thinking about how you are you're so dedicated to keeping it real. You use your platform to to normalize the struggles of motherhood and marriage. And I've found myself cheering and clapping and saying amen over and over again when I read your post because you're so honest. You really seem to be on a mission to help women stop judging themselves, stop comparing themselves to others and embrace and celebrate who they are at all times, not just in their finer moments. But your followers see your be- beautiful smile and your positive, empowered attitude. And I bet you that they just don't believe you have really ugly, horrible moments. So I think you need to use this opportunity to say right now, like everybody, it's true. I have really ugly, horrible moments. <laughs> oh, I, do?
2: Oh my gosh. I remember reading your book and and. What resonated was when you were saying, like as a person that I just do have like a happier, calmer demeanor. But the rage that I felt when my toddler will not go to bed, it's like and and I talk my I'm like, I bet you that this is like a buildup of a lot of things, but it came out as like me yelling and 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 then you know, I was not my best self at all, like at all. It was not a good moment for me. And then I come out of the room and I reflect, I'm like, I didn't even know that that was like in me. And that just came spilling out. Like, of course I have those moments.
0: Right. Yeah. It's such a trap believing that other people don't have those moments. And um, also for me as a therapist, you know, people, my clients look at me seeming you know, so calm and sort of measured and put together, and they assume automatically that I don't have the same kinds of struggles that they do. Um, and that's why I wrote in my book that I wish we could all have a window into each other's behind-the-scenes lives. Um, right. Actually, one of the things I love most about being a therapist, one of one of the many privileges and rewards of the work I do, is that I see day after day that things are not what they seem that that people can look incredibly put together can be incredibly accomplished in high powered positions at work or you know maybe they appear to be the wholesome ever patient soft spoken mama but but what i hear about and see in in the sanctity of my office is a different picture altogether My co host
2: here, Abby, just being around her and her husband, I did the same thing. Like, I idealized their marriage because if you see them together and the way that they speak about each other, it's like you can build this whole story that they don't have problems because you're just seeing this, you know, them in a very, very good light. So that helps us to shift gears. Something that was really important to ask you about was relationships. I was so impacted as a new mother. Like I definitely felt fell into the trap of really resenting my husband, Drew. I did not expect that to happen. I thought we had a very strong marriage before Max came along. Um, But it seemed like my whole world was flipped on its head and that Drew was pretty much unfazed by his new title. You know, our first baby was fussy, so he definitely had challenges. But after just one short week, he went back to work and I was there with the fussy baby. Breastfeeding was going horribly. Like, I didn't know anyone else was struggling with that. But anyway, when Drew would come home, I was automatically annoyed with him. It was like I felt like he had a break because he was going to work. And then when he came back into the house, I was like, take this baby. And, you know, I just kind of took the day out on him. If if he wanted to at that time, he played softball. If he had a softball game, I just felt like my day went into overtime and he was living his best life. So. To speak very plainly, I was just annoyed and really passive-aggressive for Drew or to Drew for a couple months. Um, I'm wondering if you have any tips for women that are there right now.
0: Well, first of all, I think the most important truth to hold in mind here is that the inequities are real. They are not imagined in the minds of depleted, angry women. <laughs> so, you know, what looks like, a. this is a, a really good example about the inequities, um, what looks like a, a choice, like who is going to stay home from work when a kid is too sick to go to daycare or school. That's often not a choice at all, but a mandate that's driven by hidden power differentials and and public policies that continue to to privilege men and traditional family arrangements that make it so it's hard for men to say to their boss, I've got to stay home with a sick kid. Um, But people more or less expect that of women. So there, I mean, I could go on and on and on about the inequities and how ingrained they are, how real they are. And I think the reason I, I always feel compelled to bring this up is because women often are thinking to themselves is it just me like it's really not that bad and he he really does a lot to help around the house and you know trying to sort of convince themselves that the the sense of imbalance is not really as great as they think it is but but it is it's a very real thing so I think the most important thing I can say to women who are in that zone right now of you know being passive aggressive, as you put it, Amy, and kind of actively resenting um, their partners is to speak up, to speak to the feelings. Uh, And by that, I don't, I'm not talking about scorekeeping, (laughs) like saying out loud, it isn't fair that you get to play softball and I don't, or, you know, you've gotten to go out with friends once a week for the last few months, and I haven't gone at all since the baby was born. Those kind of, you know, tallying and laying it out as unfair is probably not helpful. But the feelings behind that are so important to articulate. So saying, for example, I'm feeling really depleted. Um, I'm feeling so starved for time with my girlfriends. I'm starting to feel worried about myself because I have such a short fuse, and I think that's because I've had so little time to myself. Um, talking about those, what I would call kind of softer feelings or vulnerable feelings, as opposed to the angry, kind of bitter, resentful feelings. Though those, although those are completely valid, if we, if that's all that our partners see. Is that is the anger or the resentment that doesn't invite um, a supportive response? It doesn't it, it doesn't pull them closer. It makes them kind of want to steer clear, <laughs> um, which is the opposite of what we need. So, I think that giving voice to the softer feelings in there around depletion, um, fear, lo- longing, and hunger. That is critically important. The passive aggressive position is really tempting. You know, it's very compelling. Um, I read somewhere in a book about, it was a book about couplehood in general, not about, you know, new new parents, uh, about a woman who was keeping a hate book about her husband. That's what she called it. So she would write down everything he did that bothered her or, <laughs> or let her down or irritated her. And she was basically just amassing all this evidence of what a jerk he is. Mm -hmm. And what do you think happened to that marriage? (laughs) That did not go well. (laughs) It did not go well. And they ended up divorced because what happens, I mean, there's even research supporting this, that if we start keeping track and building a case internally of how unhelpful or unsupportive or selfish or whatever it is our partner is, then pretty soon we're gonna take action. We're gonna sort of be committed to that um, conceptualization of our partner. And we're either gonna take action and decide not to stay with the person or we're gonna stay in a really miserable marriage. And so the question would be like, do you want that stone in your shoe all the time or like stone upon stone? Do you want those stones in your pockets weighing you down? The resentment is totally valid. Again, I wanna just emphasize that, that it makes all the sense in the world, but but does the stewing silently about it serve your marriage? Does that passive aggressive stance serve your marriage? Absolutely not. Um, so I think that we need to to ask ourselves whether the choices that we're making, like like keeping something we're disgruntled about to ourselves and being irritable or cold instead. I am absolutely guilty of that. That, mm-hmm. for example, as a choice that we, that's a choice that we make. And is that in our own best interest, right? We we want to feel ultimately more connected to our partner. We want to stay married, presumably. We want to feel supported. Um, so we need to ask ourselves whether the choices we're making day to day are helping, are serving us or helping us with those goals.
2: Yeah. It's it's really interesting cuz I'm just thinking back to myself as a first-time mom and I'm hearing all of this. I'm like it's just still so hard the way that things are set up cuz I was, you know, home all day with this fussy baby and then your partner comes home. And and so I don't know, I just want to emphasize to the people that are there right now, of course, we want to help you and get you to a better place, but I just wish things were set up differently for women and that we had more support. Or I know the judgment on myself is, as a first-time mom, I was like, why would I need help? I have myself and one little infant to take care
0: of. Right. That's a great example of what I was saying earlier about, you know, we internalize um, the kind of... The social setup of a woman being home alone, caring for her baby—that is the norm, and so we say to ourselves, "I should be able to do this. This is what everybody does. Why is it so hard? Why am I counting the minutes until he comes home from work?" Um, Yeah,
2: right. Um, So I know that Drew and I have come a really long way in using a lot of the tactics that you were talking about. Like I was able to better name my feelings. And then he was able to be more understanding. I know another big shift for us was that I had to take some time away and out of the house. Like I thought that the most challenging thing after we had a baby would be for us as a couple to take time away. And that is challenging. But the most challenging was for me to give myself permission to leave the house as just myself, like to take time for just Amy. Molly, you and I have talked a little bit. And one thing that I've been bringing up over and over is the mental load of things for the mom. Um, I, you know, as a third time mom now, three little boys, I had have started giving pushback because what I realized was that my mental load was so heavy. I was the one that was deciding whether the child had to be seen by a doctor, whether they had to stay home from daycare, who was going to stay home with them if they had to stay home, whether my husband could even go to his friend's freaking event in May. He kept asking me about, like, I can't make any more decisions. Do you have um, some insight about a mother's mental load and how we can kind of start to help ourselves offload some
0: of some of these big things. This is a really tricky thing, because there's a part of me that wants to say this isn't going to change until men are socialized differently. And the socializing of men begins in childhood. It is so hard to have an influence on an adult man who has already been molded and shaped and programmed to have certain priorities and beliefs and um, blind spots and styles of communicating. Um, And actually, one really interesting, I think, tremendously important piece of research that relates here is that men's ability to accept influence from their wives or their female partners is a major predictor of marital stability, meaning that marriages are stronger and both women and men are happier in the marriage when men bend and change and accommodate in response to their wives' input. So that can be anything from what kind of car to purchase or what to watch on TV or where to go on vacation or what kind of cereal is better for the kids to something with deeper significance or more something that's more directly emotional. Like, you know, for a man to approach his wife and say, hey, I've been reflecting on how upset you got when I didn't come home on time. And I hear how important it is to you that I stick to my schedule so that you can rely on me. And I want you to know I'm really working on that. So, so that's what it would look like for a man to be accepting his wife's influence. You know, that they've had a day or two before some kind of argument or conflict in which she's saying, I really need you to come home when you say you're going to come home. And he comes back a day or two later and says, I'm going to do that. And, and I get it. So. So anyway, in terms of mental load, I think the best thing is for us to be transparent about what that load feels like and how it affects our feelings toward our partners. So we could say something like, can I just give you a little snapshot of what it looks like inside my head right now? I'm thinking about, you know, and then sort of launch into the 75 things that are on your mind that have to do with, you know, decisions for uh, all things domestic and everything having to do with the kids over the next several days or week, you know, let alone month or year, that if you can give your partner that snapshot and then say, um, when, when I get the sense that all this stuff is not also on your radar... That, that it's mine alone to carry, I start to feel resentful and I don't wanna feel that way toward you. So what can we do about this? So so again, there's there's a, a, an important distinction between kind of irritably or exhaustedly rattling off everything that's on your mind um, versus saying to your partner with truly an intention of of closeness, like, can I tell you about what it looks like inside my head right now? Um, And then with the intention of um, trying to join together to address the resentment that's going to keep brewing if you continue to feel alone in all of this. Because you know what? He doesn't want you to resent him either. (laughs) Um, And and most of the time, you know, of course, there are unfortunately going to be some exceptions, but most of the time, the men that we're married to are not jerks, and they're not actually thinking that you should have to carry a load that heavy. Um, It's really, again, it goes back to this issue of socialization and sort of all the things that women from a very early on are trained to keep track of, and things that are so-called, you know, women's work or women's territory, that until that changes at a much larger, deeper level, individual men are going to sort of need to be told or brought into that internal world where, where we give them that picture and say, this is what it's like for me. And I don't want to resent you. I don't want to feel so alone in tracking all of these things.
1: That's so good, Molly. And that really leads into something that comes in all the time from from our followers and in our DMs and just in responses to so many of the podcast topics that we've already covered. It's about communication, right? It's about saying what's on your heart. But I know many women, myself included, we have fallen back to that nagging feel of you've said it once, you've said it twice. Is it wrong to feel like our partners should just be able to do something? Instead of us having to ask, I mean, like if, the, if the dishes are overflowing, don't they see that as well? Don't they see that there's no more diapers? And I think as women, we see those things, but men, it might take them, you know, a couple of days or a couple of weeks to actually have that resonate with them. Uh-huh. So what are your tips? So instead of relying on the nagging, what are your tips, Molly, for these women about how to start working towards a better place?
0: So... T- my expert professional opinion is, no, it is not wrong to feel like our partners should just be able to do something and that we should not have to ask them. That is absolutely not wrong. This is a huge issue. We Women don't want help in the form of an assistant, the way that an assistant would take orders or receive a list of tasks and get things done. Um we want a partnership in which all that needs doing is mutually seen and felt and tackled. So I think, again, the key is to talk about the process that's unfolding to, to kind of see the game rather than hitting the ball back and forth. So like, hitting the ball back and forth and playing the game would be you watch the dishes pile up in the sink, and you start to feel resentful that he hasn't washed the dishes yet. Or, you know, he washes the dishes, but doesn't wipe down the counters, which is, (laughs) can't tell you how many times I've heard that complaint, you know, like, does he not see that the counters are dirty? Or does he not see that there's pieces of food in the drain of the sink? And that needs to be emptied etc so if you're playing the game you're watching all of that unfold and you're kind of stewing and getting irritated about it and then maybe you're also eventually lashing out or nagging about it but if you see the game for what it is and then talk about it and by the way i mean i'm really just using game as an analogy i'm not saying this is a game but just the idea of like y- you're you're playing tennis and you're hitting the ball back and forth and just keeping your eye on the ball versus you're in the crowd and you're watching it and you see who's playing what part. I think it can be so helpful for couples to be able to zoom out and have that perspective and then to talk about the process and to see that pattern or that, you know, continuing interaction as the enemy as opposed to the other person being the one who's at fault or the enemy. So so you you would say it's happening again that, that feeling that I've told you about. I'm totally overwhelmed by the load I'm carrying and my perception is that your load is much lighter. What can we do about this? And that's very different from either stewing in silence or quote unquote nagging. Mm -hmm. I think it can also be really helpful to, to, I guess I was mentioning this earlier, that we have certain interpretive frames that we put around the struggles that we're having or stories that we tell ourselves about why a particular problem is happening. So in this case, we have stories we tell ourselves about why our husbands are in this role of helping, as opposed to just knowing what needs to get done and doing it. Um, Is it because he's a jerk? Probably not. Is it because some patterns got laid down early on that are hard to undo? Like, you know, patterns getting laid down in the early postpartum, Period um, where I think moms, you know, out of necessity, have to be a lot more intimately involved in the care of the baby, oftentimes, and then those patterns get get uh, established, and it's hard to undo them. So, is it because of that? Is it because of how he was socialized from an early age? Is it maybe even because he doesn't feel so competent in the realm of parenting? All of those are are interpretations that are much kind of kinder, much more conducive to having loving feelings toward our imperfect partners. So we have a lot of stay-at-home
1: mom listeners, and they are still reporting that their partners feel that their work is the children and the house, so taking on all of that work. And we know that is way too much. That's way too much for any human being to take on. So how would you encourage a stay-at-home mom to communicate with her partner that all the house stuff – All the children's stuff, everything that they see should not fall on her.
0: Well, even the question makes me sad because it puts the onus on the woman. I mean, it's ridiculous that any man would endorse the idea that everything about the domestic realm is his wife's responsibility. But I'm also just talking about, when I say it makes me sad, I'm talking about how overwhelmed and stretched too thin women already feel. And then to add to that, there's this sense of pressure to be the broacher of hard relationship topics to to inform or educate their partners about things with the hope that it will pay off. This is actually something that comes up a lot in my practice, women feeling like, working on communication is just another task for them um, or having to bring things up with their partners so that they can work on those things, that that's just another responsibility that's on their plate. And there's a lot of wishing their husbands or partners would ever be the ones to say, hey, I've been reading this great book about intimacy in couplehood, or "Or I've been reading this great book about disciplining toddlers. I think you should take a look. You know, it's so often the other way around in a heterosexual couple where it's the woman who's doing all that research and reading and trying to get her male partner to, to get on board. So all of it, all of that is just to say it, it makes me sad that that is the state of affairs and that women are having to, again, kind of rack their brains and figure out how can I get this across to him. And I don't, uh, this is one of the places where I don't feel like I have a great answer, except to continue communicating in the way that I've been describing, where what you lead with in these conversations with your partner is the feelings of depletion, the feelings of um, being overwhelmed, feeling alone, feeling stretched too thin, all of those things that should pull for a supportive, compassionate response from your partner, as opposed to the kind of airing of grievances, or, you know, trying to appeal to his logic somehow. I think that, If we can talk about ourselves as being in a very vulnerable place and really needing more support from that vulnerable place, the likelihood of a supportive, constructive response is much higher.
2: Now, Molly, is it wrong to give him a little bit of immersion therapy where you would be <laughs> the, tra- I'm, the training
0: weekend? I've heard it put. Away. <laughs>
2: I honestly my stay-at-home moms, it breaks my heart too, oh. but I know that we're still there. Like the men literally say to them, It's two kids in a house. It's not that hard. And I'm like I really think he needs to get the full picture. Mm-hmm. And couples that have this issue, it seems like the mom if she does leave, she makes all the meals. She she's got like her husband set up for success for his 3 hours away from the house or her 3 hours away from the house. Mm-hmm. I'm like, why do you do that? Don't do it because he needs to see how much work it is. Now, I'm not a therapist, you are. Is that a bad idea?
0: I don't think that's a bad idea at all. I I mean, I don't think it should be done out of spite or like a punitive thing, (laughs) you know, like you (laughs) you try it for a day, and but like really as a way of helping the less involved parent, which is usually the father, understand exactly how unrelenting the work is and how hard it is to stay on top of everything. And there, I mean, this relates to something that I wrote about in the book, which it's a slightly, you know, it's a different realm, a different arena having to do with um, actual sort of neurological changes or brain changes that occur for men when they are involved in the caretaking of their children. So, it's a slight tangent, if you'll humor me for a second, if, if men, so when women um, become pregnant and give birth, their brains change prompted by the hormonal changes, their brains change to promote greater empathy, basically to set them up to be good caretakers of this baby that's on the way. And men, of course, don't have any sort of biological hormonal changes that are occurring to prepare them for fatherhood. But we have research showing that when men are intimately involved day in and day out in the care of their babies, their brains actually change and get rewired in much the same way that women's do automatically. And they become more attuned to their children, better able to sort of read their children's signals or to know which cry is a hungry cry versus a tired cry. So... If we take that as sort of an analogy, you know, to to this late down the line when there's a stay home mom and she's wanting her husband to understand he, she can't possibly do everything in the house. If he has a chance to be involved at that same level and to sort of walk in her shoes and spend a day or a week or a weekend in that role. I think the chances are pretty high that he will far better understand exactly what it's like and that that is way too big a load to be carrying all the time. So, I, yeah. d- I mean, a lot of this, I think, comes down to idea of rather than kind of resenting our partners for being oblivious or seeing them as being on the sidelines or. Um, because they don't want to be more involved or because they're not interested or because they don't have what it takes, that we need to look at how we can give our partners the same opportunities we have to be attuned to our children, to be aware of just everything that needs doing. So, you know, it's kind of a little Jedi mind trick. Like, you know, this is about creating opportunities um, for each other that that allow us to step into each other's shoes.
2: Well, one thing when I'm thinking about this subject, because I've become very passionate about women getting more help from their partner and kind of changing things, you know, a little bit for the next generation, I think about what I'm demonstrating to three guys, you know, we're raising three boys I need these boys to understand that a man, a parent, a father does play a big role inside the household, you know, in, in everything. Mm -hmm. So that's what, you know, having three boys, I think that that has really solidified my passion for saying, like, I'm pushing back. I want to demonstrate new gender roles in mm-hmm. this household.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm with you there as the mother of two boys. Pe- people, children learn best by what is modeled for them.
1: Good. So it's not immersion therapy, it's opportunity, everyone. <laughs> okay. okay. <laughs> And Molly, throughout this, you really go into so much good detail on communication between partners. And I know that there's a stigma in therapy just in America. And from personal experience, I know that seeing a therapist can just be so, so helpful. So when do you feel that couples can kind of hash it out on their own and there's no need for a professional? And when do you feel having an expert, taking a look at the relationship, being a mediator can really make a difference?
0: Well, in my ideal world, nobody would try to work things out on their own and people would go to therapy as regularly as they go to the dentist or take their cars for oil changes because relationships require maintenance and we can't be expected to know exactly how to take care of them, just like we aren't expected to fix our own cars when they break down or most of us anyway. (laughs) Um, So. Really, I don't see a dividing line between couples who need a professional and couples who don't, or or a threshold that once crossed means professional help is in order. Um, I think everybody can benefit, and uh, I wish that it was more accessible and that there was less of a stigma. That said, I think if there isn't a basic sense of safety in the relationship, and I mean emotional safety here. Um, in which you feel that even if it's messy and hard and not immediately rewarding to engage in a conversation with your partner about what's going on is at least possible um, versus some of the women that I see individually in therapy who feel like they can't even broach tough topics because they feel so far away from their partners or they have felt burned or rejected when they tried and they've, you know, kind of put this shield around them that protects them from further hurt or rejection. In those cases, I think a therapist is needed to help the couple restore a basic sense of safety before the tough conversations can happen on their own at home. Um, and then I guess the other thing would be if you, if you feel like you've already been trying and trying to have those tough conversations about your process, about what's going on between the two of you but you're getting nowhere, you're you're spinning your wheels. That would be another indication that professional help is needed. Because what I do, I mean that is very common with the couples that I that I see. They come in saying, you know, we've been they're either saying we're so far we're so disconnected from each other. You know, we don't ever talk anymore or they're saying we're having the same argument over and over and over again. We're getting into the same tangle over and over and over again. So what I do is I help those couples kind of put a lid on the conflict on the escalation that's happening to create that alone creates more safety. Um, and then I can draw out the feelings from each of them that pull for that softer, more compassionate response, like I was describing earlier. So if couples don't feel safe to even venture into a tough conversation, or if they feel like they're trying and trying and trying and nothing ever changes, those would be the good indicators that, that professional help would be beneficial. And
1: really, if we're all being honest, we have all been in those situations. Definitely. So yeah, whether it's couples therapy or individual therapy, we just encourage everyone to just get the help that they need, whether it's through an insurance plan or the EAP or working through your church organization. Um, these can all be just amazing resources to really help get you to the next level on an individual or on that couple basis. Right.
2: Molly, we could talk to you all day. So we have (laughs) to just say thank you so much for writing that book that is helping to change women's lives. Thank you for taking the time to do this interview. I wanted to share a quote that you said that really resonated with me. You said, if we valued women's well-being, we'd see tons and tons of of books about women's well-being. The books are all focused on the child's well-being. Of course, all three of us are mothers and we love our children immensely and are very concerned about their well-being. But what we wanted the conversation to focus on today was that women need to be cared for too. And we're just opening up these conversations so that people feel validated and safe in their feelings and and they know that they are not alone in their experiences so thank you so much molly now if people want to hear more of you or see more from you where is the best
0: place that they could
2: connect with you
0: so i have been slowly building more of a presence on instagram it doesn't come naturally to me but i'm trying and you can find me there at as molly Millwood PhD. My website is mollymillwood.com. So people can read about me there and find links for purchasing my book or submit a form to contact me or simply email me directly molly at mollymillwood.com. So we're going to link all of that so that they can easily find that.
2: And if you had one last message to share with mothers everywhere,
0: no pressure, (laughs) what would it be? Well, I will try to do that. But actually, before I do, I just wanted to go back to what you were saying a moment ago about wanting um, women to feel less alone and to feel normal in their struggles. And I wanted to express my gratitude to you for all that you are doing um, toward that goal. I think that you are doing a tremendous thing and that this podcast is the very thing that we need. This kind of podcast is a very thing that we need for women to feel less alone, um, more supported by each other. You know, we have to lift each other up. So thank you for the work that you're doing and for inviting me to be a part of it. If I could distill everything that I think about and write about and work with people on in my practice into a single message for those who are listening, I think it would be that well-being and mental health are not about the absence of negative emotion or the absence of conflict in in marriage or partnership. Negative emotion tends to be resisted and pushed away. And in women, especially, it is pathologized. But it's actually just part of the whole array of experience that comes with being human. And mental health or well being is actually best understood as the freedom to feel all of what we feel, as opposed to censoring and distorting and denying. So I think in order to do that, we need to break through this illusion that other people are doing better than us, that other mothers are navigating motherhood with grace and perfection and learn that we're all just fumbling along quite imperfectly. And I was saying earlier that one of the gifts of being a therapist is that I have a window into people's private worlds to to the thoughts and feelings that they don't readily share with others and this keeps me in touch with just how much everyone is struggling in one way or another how how normal it is to have big insecurities no matter how old you are or how confident and competent and poised you appear from the outside so that's a tremendous privilege in my life and a gift that I felt I could give to much greater numbers of people than the ones I'm able to see in my practice, if I could get those common struggles onto the page, if I could give everyone who reads the book a bigger window into our shared humanity. So I just want to say thank you again for the light that you have been shining on my book. I appreciate it so much and just hope that it continues to get into the hands of um, women who need it.
1: And men. <laughs> yeah, and men too. Yes, this this whole podcast episode too, just so many of the pieces I think that men and our partners would be able to benefit from. So for all those listening, if you have not read To Have and To Hold – and you're a mother in any stage, I can promise that you won't be disappointed. So this is on my list for every baby shower gift to any new mama. I wish I had this on maternity leave. I just think it would would have been so much more validating, especially after the issues I had with our second child. And just know that it's deep in education. I mean, it's not written by just Amy or I, just another mama. It's written by someone with a PhD. So Molly, you're able to share your expert opinion while also giving information that just is so freeing for the moms who read it. And if you're having these emotions and you're nodding your head throughout this, you just will be able to put those valid emotions into words and be able to see from a professional opinion what they actually mean. So if you all found this episode valuable, we would love to see a review from you. Anywhere that you're listening to this, reviews are life in the podcast space and they really help us find more interview guests just like Molly. So thank you so
0: much, Molly. We hope to have you on again. Thank you, Amy and Abby, and keep doing the wonderful work that you're doing.